millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another special bonus edition of the Paul Ryder Tapes. Great episode for you this week. It features one of the most important characters in the Monday story, without whom we may never even have heard of them. This man is responsible for shepherding the band to the success they became. He got them their first record deal and steered their careers in the early days. He did their press interviews, refereed their conflicts and was single-handedly responsible for triggering the Flair's fashion trend that they trailblazed. He was their very first and arguably their most beloved manager, the visionary, the gent, the lovely... Phil Sachs. How are you doing, Phil? I'm doing very well. Well, you eat you eat a bit. My Weetabix. <laughs> well, it's morning for you, isn't it? It is, and I'm and I'm a bit tired today for some reason. And a lot of people have been talking about you and mentioning you, like you're a very important figure. And in fact, only yesterday we were talking to Gaz. And you, yeah. your name came up several times, you know, and always, everyone always speaks so fondly of you. <laughs> I don't know if you're quite aware of that, really. How... Actually, I am, because even though I don't get books and stuff, I don't buy books by Sean or, uh, you know, by, by people. You, you know, sometimes when I'm in Waterstone, they have a peek, and like Bez's book, and Bez says, oh, you know, uh, Phil was my favourite manager, and... Yeah because I don't think he was interested in the money. He just liked us or something along those sort of lines. He, Bez said that to me on camera. But the thing is, you see, is because I wasn't interested in money and only what is being, like, you know, their mate and all the rest of it and doing it for them, I was actually a crap manager. Because managers were about monetizing the Mondays. And, and I wanted to do that. But because I was an amateur, really, rather than a professional, you know, manager, um, I didn't know how to do it. So really, to some degree, they needed a twat, not me. You know what I mean? Although it probably worked for me at the beginning and it worked. I, but you did the most important thing that a professional manager wouldn't have done, which is take them on pre any deal you you're the ones that you, you're the one that yeah. elevated them to being a being financially viable yeah it's true i mean yeah um in the early days it definitely cost me and i want but i wanted to manage them but we'll talk about that when we when, when we chat well we are chatting already <laughs> all right 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 so is this it this is it yeah I'll say when I first met Paul, right, I, I think the first time I met Paul was probably with Paul Davis, uh, probably not Gaz, 
uh, and probably another couple of lads, but I think it was Paul and Paul Davis, and they came to my stall in the uh, Arndale Centre in Manchester when I was selling flares and all the rest of it. And they were like one of the first groups of lads that had come there uh, because the first people that got into flares in Manchester and that Manchester thing were actually, I think, 15 and 16-year-old girls. But the boys followed pretty quickly afterwards. And... I think Sean tells the story that they used to come to the stall and nick stuff. And I think that's rubbish because I used to have a big iron bar. And if anybody put their hand through the, you know, to pinch something, I'd smack it. You know, so anybody who thought they were like Jack the Lads or whatever, um, you know, used to get gangs of lads running through the Arndale. We used to keep them at bay because we know how to handle them. Maybe Sean might have been with them or whatever. Anyway, they were customers and they, they would buy stuff and all the rest of it. And they were part of those, say, original 100, 200 lads from Salford who were buying those clothes from us. Because basically, um, my brother and myself were the only people in the whole of Britain selling that sort of clothing to this small group of people that would, you know. What is that sort of clothing? What, what, what are you talking about? Basically... What happened, the Manchester thing started because three girls started chatting to me on the stall. And these girls were saying, do you ever get any flares in? And I'm going, flares, what do you want flares for? She said, well, we're all in the dole. Come from Salford, we're all in the dole, we can't get jobs. We can't afford to pay for stretch uh, jeans and stuff. So I said, well, let me have a look. So I went to... Uh, so, some Iranians we used to buy stuff from. They used to buy packages, you know, like half a million pounds worth of jeans from Levi or something like this. All stuff that for practically nothing because Levi didn't want them. They were clearing them out. And I had a look through and I, I think I picked up about half a dozen pair of flares at some ridiculous price, like a pound each. And I took them in. The girls came back next day and they loved them. And I think they bought a pair each. Um... And I didn't charge them a lot of money. Um, it was just great. And because of those three girls, the next day, ten girls turned up. Did you get any flares? And lads started turning up. And then you're really talking, and within a two-week period, all these people were turning up. Was the original motivation for them to buy them because they knew they'd be cheap because they weren't popular? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, Absolutely. The flares started taking off and the kids are buying them. And no one else in Manchester or England is selling them. Uh, so we're like the granddads, um, even though we're in our 30s, Leonard and I, we're like the grandfathers of this Manchester scene starting off. And I always remember the Wrangler guy coming in, the, the rep. He was called Clive. And I said, Clive, do you ever get any uh, wider jeans? He said, yeah, we got... A lot of old cords. I think they were beige, blue and brown, the colours. Um, we've got them in packs. There's 30 in a pack and we can't sell them. We can't get rid of them anywhere. So I said, well, i tell you what, give me a, a box of each colour. So I got the box of each colour. We put them on the stall, sold out in a week. I mean, at one stage, Leonard and I were taking more in our stall in the Arndale market than Kendall's were on any of their floors in their shop. We're taking that much money because we were the only people you could buy them from. And Clive, Clive's boss phoned him and said, who's this lunatic who's taken these three cases of cords? So he can't be that much of a lunatic. He's just ordered another 30 cases of each. So that's basically what it was. And Paul and PD and Sean were like the first customers coming in with those kids from Salford. Um, and what I realised at the time was this, this was a Manchester fashion. This was a Manchester fashion that spread, and we know how far it spread. And, you know, Paul and Sean and PD and all these kids that we were meeting, they were the epitome of that. They were the first ones that ever came up with all that style. And it was a Manchester style. Okay, so tell me 
what your first impressions were when you first met Paul. Can you remember? Now, at that time, um, because I was interested in music and I was a big, like, John Cale fan and Velvet Underground fan, etc. And like I said, I'd been a DJ and I would DJ at various clubs in Manchester. But because of that, I was always interested in music. And there was a lad at one of the stalls in the market who was in a band. And his band were going to be playing a night at the Hacienda called Hometown Gig. And I said I'd go and watch them. So I went to watch this lad's band. And I can't remember what they were like. And you've got to remember the Hacienda at that time. This is when it had first opened. And the lads that were the Mondays would be seen dead in it. You know... The Hacienda was awful. It really was. It was too arty and up their own arses type thing. Anyway, I was there and I was on the balcony watching this band and Paul, Sean and two other lads, I think one of them was PD, I don't know who the other one was, came and sat next to me. And I'm going, what in the hell are you lot doing here? They said, we're in a band. And I said, oh, right, right. And I think, I mean, one of them said, no, in fact, I think I said, well, why don't you give me a tape? Because a guy who'd been my best mate was Mike Pickering. Mike Pick was involved with the Hacienda. He chose the bands that played, etc., etc. So I thought, oh, let me have a tape. I'll see if I can help you out. Um, they gave me the tape. And I remember playing it. And it had stuff like You and Me Differ and um, other songs that probably lost in the midst of time now, on this tape. So I'm driving along and I'm thinking, well, yeah, this is all right, right? And what I particularly liked was the fact that it was music for all those kids. So, you know, no one else was making music for all these kids wearing flares and all the rest of it. Because when all these sort of lads and girls went out, you would go to a normal disco in Manchester and they'd be dancing, like God knows what, to Marvin Gaye or whatever. Nobody was playing that sort of music. Um, I thought, that's great. So what I did is I said to Mike Pick, um, I've got a tape, would you have a listen to it to see if, you know, you'll put them on, the hometown gig. And Mike said, I don't need to hear the tape. If you like it, I'll put them on. So they got on and they didn't win. Some of the band won. It was like three bands. I think they came second. Uh, nobody took much notice of them. Because um, it's very shambolic on stage. It really was. It always felt like it was about to fall apart. And it was like, you know, yeah, it did feel like it was going to fall apart. And we watched them. And then Mike said to me, I know why you wanted me to put them on. You're thinking of managing them, aren't you? And it never even occurred to me. And I, I went downstairs and I remember saying, um, do you want me to manage you? And they said, oh, we've been dying for you to say that. And I think the only reason they wanted me to manage them was I must have known something about business because we had a store and sold jeans. And I think that was it. So that's how I ended up being their manager. And, you know, we did, we got very close. You know, I would go along to the schoolroom in Swinton uh, to watch the rehearsals. I'd give them advice. I was always trying to get them to do their version of Northern Soul songs, obviously because of my background with Northern or the, the Twisted Wheel and stuff. And I suppose the nearest they got to that was the track 24-Hour Party People. Because if you listen to that, that is definitely what they're trying to do. The first gig they ever did, apart from doing that at the Hacienda or what they might have done locally, I hired a small bar in Manchester called Corbiers, which was just off St Anne Square. And we sold the tickets at 50p each and 85 of them. And the place only held 85 people. And obviously at 50p a time, I wasn't making any money out of it. Because we had PA and all the rest of it. And uh, I always remember being there with my brother and saying, bloody hell, have a look around here. This is the coolest place in Britain, look at the lads that are in here and the girls that are in here. They're completely different than anywhere else in the world, you know, Britain. And here they all are in this little club, Corbiers, watching this band, the Happy Mondays. So 
So I was a huge fan because it was like something new, it was different, it was a subculture. It just, I loved it all. And them themselves, because it was a little bit like, you know, um, them and us. No other musicians in Manchester were into them at all. We started rehearsing at the boardwalk and ACR would be in the next room. You've got to remember, music in Manchester at that time, that sort of post-Joy Division, the beginning of New Order type thing, was very muso, jazzy, all this sort of stuff. What I sometimes call the jazz cul-de-sac. And everybody looked down on the Mondays because of the, they were scallies, basically. They weren't like professional musicians. People would say, oh, Mark Day, no idea what he's doing guitar-wise, but it still sounded great. Billy Riley once said that. I have no idea what he's doing, but it sounds brilliant. I think what happened then was Mike said, oh, let's record them. And we recorded them in Berry. Mike was the producer. And we did that first EP with Delightful on. So we recorded the EP and it was released to no acclaim whatsoever. But in London... Jeff Barrett, who was doing PR, he really got into them. And he championed them in London. So they were playing things like the Black Horse in Camden. And all the press would be there. And in Manchester, no one would turn up. You've got to remember, Sean was very shy at least this time. So when interviews were being done, Sean wouldn't do the interviews. I used to do the interviews on behalf of the band. If you look at very, very early interviews, I think there's one with Mick Middles. He might have been the first person to interview about the Mondays. You'll find that I'm doing all the talking. No one else talks. And then Sean was a bit shy on stage. And he said to me, for a gig we were going to do at the Hacienda, he said, can my mate um, come on stage? and dance. And I'm going, what? And I met Bez, come back from Morocco, apparently, uh, living in the mountains. I think that bit is probably true, actually. And I'm saying, you can't have a... He says, like a go-go dancer, I said. And he said, yeah. I said, you can't have a go-go dancer. Anyway, so I was against the idea of Bez being there. And Bez, of course, is on the stage, shaking his miracles, chatting to Sean. And I noticed that Instead of people just walking away like they used to do normally in the Hacienda, people were laughing. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this is quite good, isn't it? Because at least they're not walking away. And Bez actually became an integral part of the band. Even though he couldn't shake the maracas in time, ever. He had no sense of musical timing whatsoever. Um, I always remember on Freaky Dancing, Gaz had to shake the maracas because Bez couldn't do it in time. But he became a focal point. Other bands copied it, didn't they? You had Stone Roses with Cressa. You had uh, Flowered Up with that bloke with the big flower around his head, etc., etc. They were all trying to be Bez. So, yeah, that's it. When we did Freaky Dancing, um, and at that time, I was, you know... I mean, I, I nearly had a fight with Tony Michael Edith because he wouldn't play Freaky Dancing on his show on Piccadilly Records. Why wouldn't he um, play? Why wouldn't he play it? Well, in retrospect, when I listen to it, it's not very radio friendly. It does feel like it's about to fall apart at any moment. But to me, that was a part of the charm, and it was a bit different. Didn't Tony Michael Edith end up doing PR for the Mondays? Oh yeah, he did all the factory stuff. But at that time, he wasn't into them. You know, I'm not sure anybody was. The only people who were is Rob, Rob Gretton. Rob would let the Mondays be the support band for New Order. So we'd go and play Leeds and we'd be the support band. And it was great. You know, not only did they let the Mondays be the support band, in those days, support bands used to pay the main band to be the support. Rob would give us 50 quid as well. So, you know, um, I'd get 50 quid on the van I'd, I'd hired to get them all there or whatever. Because we weren't making any money. Basically, I was subsidising it quite happily at that time. Bernard produced Freaky Dancing. And we did that at Yellow 2 in Stockport. And then I said to um, Bernard, Mike wants us to do an album. And 
Bernard, will you be the producer? And Bernard said, I can't because we're doing our own album. Um, But, and so I'm too busy, who would you like to be as a producer? And I thought, if I had my complete choice, I'd have John Cale. Because, one, he was my hero. Two, he had produced the first Jonathan Richmond album, although there were actually demos produced by him. You know, Nico, he had done... Uh, other people's albums, the first album, and they'd gone off and become famous. Um, so I thought it'd be great. And um, Bernard said, well, if you say to Tony, why don't you get John Cale? He'll ignore you. Leave it with me. About the following week, Tony says to me, I've got a great idea for producing the, the Monday. I said, who? He said, John Cale. I said, oh, that's great. Tony was like that. Tony was like that. You could suggest things to him. But if you did it to him direct to his face, he wouldn't go for it. So Kale does the, does the first album. We had a great time. And I remember certain gigs we did. We did one um, just south of the river in a very small pub. The Cricketer's Arms it was. And I think there must have been four people at the gig. And they're all moaning. But we got half a page in the enemy because of it. Because wow. Jeff had got a photographer and uh, a journalist there. So Jeff really championed us. And um, then London actually got the Mondays before Manchester. But then it started taking off. What do you think the catalyst was? Was it that article in the NME that that day? Do you think that, what was the the thing that lit lit the fire? What it was, was the kids from Salford now had a band that was them. All those kids from Salford who might like New Order, etc., etc., and all the rest of it, but they weren't Bernard and they weren't Hooky, right? They were different people. They weren't dressed like them. Here was a band that looked like them on stage. So that would be it. But what was the catalyst for the success, for it to, for, for it to suddenly blow up? Well, I'm not sure I was involved, even involved then because we did the first album. And the first album, you know, in my humble opinion, I think is unbelievably great. It's a great album. Um, But then they started working on the second album, Bummed. And we did the demos, but before we went to the studio and all the rest of it, and you got Martin Hannett producing it, um, I wasn't the manager anymore. Because I think, and I don't know this, but it felt, like, um, how can I put it? It felt to me like Nathan, who was very pally with Tony, had a word in Tony's ear and that they were planning for Nathan to become the manager. Now, in retrospect, I was still working selling jeans and stuff, so it was difficult to be a full-time manager. Um, And in reality, I think Bummed is where it really took off. And I think the Manchester thing was starting. You had Hallelujah and the remixes and the dance music and ecstasy. That's when the Mondays took off. And when the Hacienda changed from being that art to arty to being a drug fueled nightclub, really. Tell me about how that came about, the transition to Nathan and what happened there. Nathan had been hanging around and was having a word in Sean's ear and he was saying things to Sean like, you should be getting 50% of the royalties because of you writing the lyrics. And Sean was obviously wowed by that to some extent. I thought they should also share the royalties. So that was going on. And I think Nathan was getting in Sean's ear more and more and more. And one stage... Yeah, I don't know what it was. It was in the rehearsal room at the boardwalk. Um, and it came to a head. We want Nathan. And they've got to remember, Paul, Gaz and all the others would do what Sean wants. And I said, OK, if you want that to be the case, I've got no problem. But I don't want, you know, all this contract stuff. So I tore the contract up, right? And said, go and do what you want to do. And then Mike, of course, left Factory. And at that time, I'd found Northside as well. I'd been brought to me by my mate, Macca. I'd taken Northside to Factory. And uh, Tony was saying something about getting another A&R man. 
And Rob Gretton said, what do you want another A&R man for to replace Mike? You got Phil Sachs, he's just brought you the Mondays, he's just brought you Northside. So that's how I ended up being at Factory. How long did you uh, end up staying at Factory? Until it uh, went bust. I was there about f three, three years. And then, of course, Tony and I did In the City. And we did that for so many years. So I didn't realise this. So throughout their career at Factory, you were still involved in yeah. an integral part of their development. Yeah. I got on really, really well with them. You know, people always tell stories about, you know, Sean waving guns about and all this and all this. And, you know, and Paul was a lovely, lovely bloke. Sean was great. You know, I got on really, really well with the whole band. And, yeah, we'd have the odd argument. I remember throwing a party seven at Sean's head um, at a gig in Coventry where we were supporting Colourfield. What's the party seven? Big, are they very big a can of beer? They don't sell them anymore. Why did he throw that at his head? What had he done? Well, we're just having an argument. We always used to have arguments. You know, friends do, don't they? We did lots of gigs and stuff. And my favourite of all the gigs we ever did of course, there's the one at King George's Hall in Blackburn. And I think they were supporting the Railway Children, who were another band on Factory, right, who were not my cup of tea or the Monday's cup of tea at all, but we were the support act and the playing on stage. And there was a few things I remember there. Someone threw a pint pot, right? Uh, you know one of those with the handle on the side, with dimples, and it hit PD on the head when he was playing the keyboard, and PD just walked off stage and said, I'm not fucking going out there because someone hit me with a pint pot. And I made him go back on and carry on playing, right? And then someone jumped up on stage and grabbed the mic off Sean and did Zeke Heil, Zeke Heil, and did the Hitler salute. And Benz went and smashed his teeth out with maracas. And then the police came and broke up the, the gig. And the Mondays were nearly getting arrested. We managed to explain our ways out of it and all the rest of it. And we had another one where we were at the... Where were we? we were at a club in Leicester. I think it was called the Princess Charlotte. We are in the, you know, the room at the back, backstage. And all of a sudden someone said, oh, you've got to go out. The club had been tear-gassed by a rival gang of bouncers. And we had to get out the back of the club. And then later on, they went back on and, and played when it was cleared out. You got some weird stuff. I always remember Paul particularly, right, would go on... We went on tour. We did a little tour, right? Maybe we were away for five nights or something. Paul would wear the same clothes every single night. All day and every single night. And it, everybody wore kegels, right, or anoraks, right? Yeah. And... Paul, of course, would be sick at the side of the stage before he went on every single night because he was always stage fright. Uh, so he'd throw up at the side of the stage, go on, wear the anoraks, and it's the only band in the world at the time that just wore anoraks and semi-flares and flares and were playing, uh, you know, their music. And we played in Hall one day and there were, a band in the audience noted the anoraks and of course, that was... House Martins. House Martins. And the House Martins, when they first started playing, you had Hull 7, London Nil, or whatever the album was called. If you look at all their early stuff, they were all wearing animats all the time, copied it completely from the Mondays. And of course, Stone Roses did the same sort of thing. Stone Roses were slightly gothy when they first started. They also started buying clothes from me and our kid. Uh, and adopting that. A band called the Electric Crayons changed their name to the Charlatans, got rid of the leather jackets and started dressing like the Mondays. So lots of bands, Paris Angels, all these, were started up and followed what the Mondays were doing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tell me a little bit about the, the Paul and Sean dynamic and, and how that was in the early days. In the early days, it was fine. They were two brothers. Sean was the older one. I, I never noticed any antagonism at the time. Paul was a generally nice guy, and Sean was a generally nice guy at the time. I think later on, maybe the industry and the business changed them slightly, and certainly the drugs changed them. Um, and the first time they went to the States, uh, I took them to the States. Um, we played Danceteria or something like that in New York, and... Um, I wanted to take them all to Carnegie Deli or Katsu's Deli and we ended up going to McDonald's because that was the only food they could trust. Um, I always remember Bez got stopped by the police for drinking uh, out of a bottle in the street in a bag and they poured it down the grid. And then we stayed in the Chelsea Hotel. Um, Tony thought it would be great because of his, the history of it, um, but it was awful, awful hotel. You know, three beds in a room. The water wouldn't drain out the bath. And I always remember saying to Tony, you can put the band in the Chelsea in future, but put me in a different hotel, please. But anyway, at about two o'clock in the morning, Sean and Paul and PD, I think it was, said, we're going down the Bronx. I said, what are you going down the Bronx for at two o'clock in the morning? Oh, we've heard about this new drug called crack. We're going to go and give it a go. And they came back at five in the morning and all went, oh, we're never doing that ever again. Um, famous last words, eh? <laughs> then, of course, Factory went bust. I mean, Pills and Thrills came out and everything's going really well. And then we did the last album um, and I got uh, uh, Chris and Tina from Talking Heads to produce that. Um, because we couldn't get Oakenfold again. There was a lot going on at that time. Sean was in a right mess. Um, There was situations like what had happened on TV where uh, someone had said he used to be a rent boy, or he said he used to be a rent boy as a joke, and everybody thought it was true. But what happened then was there was some article, and Sean, someone said to Sean, oh, he used to be a rent boy. And Sean said, well, it was only a fucking joke and all the rest of it. And Bez said, uh, oh, no, it was a joke. If Boy George got his knob out next to me, I'd fucking smash his face in. And there was a huge backlash against the Mondays. And everybody thought they were homophobic and all the rest of it. You know, these are lads from Salford. You're accusing of being a rent boy. Back then, in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, these lads from Salford didn't want any aspersions about their sexuality, believe me. So, yeah, there was a big backlash against them. Was that in America or was that in the UK mainly? In the UK, in the UK. But that affected them in the US quite a lot as well, didn't it? They never really took off like they should have done in the US. No, maybe, but, you know, also culturally, because it was a subculture in the UK, Manchester, etc., very drug-influenced and all the rest of it. If you think about it, completely different in the States. Those sort of people didn't exist. Not at that time, anyway. So talk a little bit about the the dynamic between the various members. How would you categorise them as personalities? PD was completely mad, right, Uh, as you well know. Um, Mark was very quiet and really the odd man out in the band very straight. Sean, Bez, uh, Paul, you know, a threesome really. Gaz as well, despite the long hair. Uh, Gaz was a bit of a joker. 
Um, yeah, Gaz was probably the joker of the band. They, they, Gaz talked a lot about how Paul was the one who cracked the whip a lot in the early days. Um, and as time, as success came, his power kind of diminished. Yeah, a little bit like the uh, the Brian, jo- Brian Jones and Mick Jagger type situation with the Stones. You know, Brian Jones's band ends up being Mick Jagger's band. And I think to some degree that's true. You know, Paul's band ends up being Sean's band. And he got Bez as well. So the focus was very much on, on Sean and Bez. And of course, I think there was always an undercurrent with Paul that he wanted some recognition for himself. Hence Big Arm. I put them on it in the city. You did? I remember that in yeah. the, Chapel Street, that pub. Yeah. 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 That's right. And the darkness played there as well. Really? Same night. Downstairs on the small stage. They hated me for that, the darkness. forgotten that you were involved within the city as well so so I'm really glad that you're you ended up still being involved how how was that with Nathan and you like how did oh I, oh no I, I, I wasn't a fan of Nathan at the time no but it's all water under the bridge he did a good job for them Nathan he got them famous and all the rest of it and I don't know it's difficult to say isn't it in one way, yeah, Pills and Thrills are the highlight and really powerful and they got the, the dance music element and oak and fold and I think a lot of that was Nathan. But you could also say that, yes, please, a lot of that was Nathan and he didn't control them and let them sink. So, yeah, one way was good and one way it wasn't great. So Paul says that it's an absolute myth that the Monday sent Factory under and that Factory went under owing the Mondays a lot of money. The reason Factory went under, right, and there's quite a lot of stuff about it, right, but the dynamic of Factory initially was that bands signed to Factory and it was done on indie deals, 50-50 splits, right, Uh, and New Order, who were the ones who brought all the money in, Right, and the Joy Division, they did it 50-50 split, but they never did any advertising. That's what New Order were about. No advertising. So it was great for Factory. 50-50 split, they were making money. The first bands that Tony starts signing up, bands like the Railway Children, Northside, the Mondays, etc., etc., they started doing record deals. And the record deals, because of Tony being so philanthropic, right, they were so weighted towards the bands rather than the company. And then what happened was because lots of advertising was going on the Mondays, New Order wanted loads of advertising as well. So what had been a way of making profits became a lost leader. Um, And I think partly that was the, the problem I think Tony was misled by a lot of the the accountants at Factory, etc. I mean, a great example is I signed a band called the Adventure Mailers. Everybody in the business was after them. Um, Virgin had given them 180 grand publishing, etc., etc. Everybody wanted to sign them. And I said to Tony, if I can get them for 115 grand, can we have them? Tony said, yeah, great. Not thinking I could get them. And I got them for 115 grand. And then Tony took me for a meal, Chinese, and said, we've got no money. Now this band, need they were like Beautiful South. They needed promotion. We didn't have the money to do any of it. So the finances had been run down to some extent. Were you around at all when, when the Mondays split up for the first time? No. When yeah. Factory happened, I was involved within the city and not involved in anything else to do with uh, the Mondays. How did you feel personally when they broke up? I always thought the Mondays missed a trick, right? And this might be because of who I am. I always thought, you, I, I listened to that first album, Pills and Thrills, 
no, sorry, the first album, 24-hour party people. And I think there's something really, really innovative and different there. And then we got Pills and Thrills, and that was like a DJ's album, Oakenfold. And I always thought the Mondays, and a lot of it's down to Sean and Bez, ended up being sort of like clowns. And, you know, they would play up, you know, swear on TV, go on, do a TFI Friday, and it would be funny because Sean would come on and he'd try to contain himself, not swearing. And they became like a music hall act. I've got to be honest with you, I hated that. I thought they sold themselves short. And if they had been able to concentrate musically and develop musically, they could have been a different type of band. I suspect Paul wouldn't have wanted that. You know, because he didn't want to clown about. He wanted to be a professional uh, musician. I remember, like you said, you know, it was his band originally. And then it, and let's be honest about it, it's a vehicle now, isn't it? I also thought musically, they never really developed. They got overtaken by fame and by the Manchester scene and dance music and the drugs um, and, you know, people making money, becoming clowns, basically. Sean won't like me saying that, but yeah. I think that's basically it. And I think they sold themselves short. And maybe it's the way of working class lads. Maybe working class lads do that. Tell me a bit more about the drug, the, the drug taking. When, when you were around, presumably it was pretty recreational and not so gnarly as it became. Yeah, no, it was only recreational. Like I say, it was the thing we'd crack. But basically, we wouldn't go anywhere without... Uh, scoring some draw first, right? So everybody smoked. Um, I don't really remember much more than that. I wouldn't even think, you know, because Coke and Ease and stuff, I never took any of that when I was with the Mondays. And I'm not sure the Mondays did, but pretty soon after, when they were involved with Nathan and Pills and Thrills and stuff, they were doing coke and ease, yeah. So that was a little bit after me, I think. But presumably you, you're aware of Paul's descent into heroin addiction and yeah. you know, mental health issues. How did, that, how did you feel about that when you, when you found out about that? You know, I mean, it's a great shame, isn't it? Because, you know, it's someone you count, not as someone you manage, a client, as it were, but someone who is a friend who isn't the same person anymore. He's not your friend anymore because his mind's not the same. Yeah, no, it's very, very sad. The, the whole Barbados thing, I always remember that because I was the A&R guy. I used to phone up weekly for a report of what was going on and they'd laid down all the tracks and then um, whatever it was, Simon, the sound man, I chatted to him and they said, well, what about the vocals? He said, oh, we're setting up the table in chairs now for Sean. So I put the phone down. I'm thinking about it all day. I'm thinking, table and chairs. Why do you need a table and chairs to do vocals? <laughs> and then I went to Tony and said, you can't fucking stand up, Tony. That's why they've got a table and chairs. And it was me who pulled the plug on that Barbados recording and brought them back. And they came back. Sean went in rehab, and then we finished the album off down south, south of London somewhere. I've never read that anywhere. This isn't like, so this is, this is really good. No, and this, I know there's always, you know, it's like history is written by the victors. We all know that. And it's written by the people in the public eye. People at the periphery, um, they often have stories, and I'm not saying they're any less true or more true or whatever, but, yeah, people should hear all the, the different angles. But, you know, yeah. um, I look back at people say things that I did, and I'm thinking, I don't remember that. And you lie yourself. I remember years and years, I always said, you know, I went to see, I really did go to see Otis Redding in 1967, play at the 
Palace Theatre in Manchester as part of the Stats Vault Tour when I was 15. I had to go by myself because none of the kids at school would go. So I went by myself, little mod, about eight row from the front, loved it, had a great time. But I used to say that I'd been, when I was 14, to see Otis Redding when he had played uh, an earlier gig in Manchester. And I lied. And, but we end up making it our reality. Like all those people that saw the um, Sex Pistols that left a free train or who weren't there. We create our own little things. But yeah. that bit about the table and chairs is absolutely true. <laughs> so just going back to Yes Please, was, were you, as the A&R guy, were you pleased with that album, when it, the, the work that was actually done in Barbados? You know what? Uh, it got slated. And yeah. I thought it was a lot better than that. I think the thing is, is Pills and Thrills was the peak. And I yeah. think... Uh, Tony thought Yes Please would sell twice as much as Pills and Thrills and it didn't. And remember, they had always had a constant rise, you know, new order, new order. And I think they weren't ready for troughs and, you know, high hills and troughs sort of thing. What about Tony? What was his attitude to the whole Mondays thing? Up to Bond, he wasn't really interested. And a great example was when they did that festival of the 10th summer, at GMEX. The Mondays were the only factory band that had struggled to get an invite. I had to fight like mad to get them an invite to that gig. Um, but later, Tony was as mesmerised by Bez and Sean. Um, I don't remember him rushing back from having interviewed Anthony Burgess uh, for Granada so that he could go and have a chat with Bez. And I'm saying, what? The bloke who, who wrote Clockwork Orange and you're running to come back and have a chat with Bev. I don't get it. But Tony did. He rushed back. But was he into the music or did he just recognise its cultural significance? I'm not sure. I don't think it was this type of music, really. No. I think uh, he was running a company. Uh, he liked the lyrics that Sean was writing, yeah. No. Uh, thought him as a poet. But... Yeah, that was, yeah. But it was his company, wasn't it? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So how did you feel when you, got, when you found out that Paula died? I know, it was very sad. I mean, you know I was at the funeral and all the rest of it. Um, I contacted Rowetta on Facebook and she let me know all about the funeral. It's a little... I don't, it's very difficult because you, there's people who you know who die too young, right? Um, and Paul's one of them, isn't he? Like Tony Wilson was a, a youngster, really. Life's short. And the older you are, the faster it goes by as well. I know, I know. That's what I'm noticing. Like, it's Christmas every other day. It's like, whoa, how do you be, you know? So, yeah, yeah. We, need to, we need to really live our lives and make the most of it, don't we? Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure. Uh, really, really, really good. And uh, tons of great material there. Thank you. It's all, it's all right. It's a pleasure. 
That's all we have for you this week. We're playing out with another Big Arm track, which is Welcome from Paul Ryder's Big Arm album, Radiator, which is out now. We'll be back again, same time, same place next week. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you can see the premiere of the video version of this next Sunday at 8pm UK time, where I'll be live in the chat as usual. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, then next week's episode has just been released on all the podcast platforms. So get over there if you can't wait. Please give us a nice review if you've not already done so. We are so humbled that the podcast has reached 100,000 downloads and the YouTube channel has reached 250,000 downloads. That's a quarter of a million. Oh my goodness, Paul would be absolutely blown away by how much everyone's embraced this project. Thank you to each and every one of you for being a part of it. Please come back again next week, same time, same place, for more fun stories and chat about Paul and the Mondays. Loads and loads of love to all of you, and big love and thanks, of course, to the mighty, the lovely Phil Sachs, and of course, to the man himself, the late, great Paul Anthony Ryder. Oh, <laughs>